Again, it is so nice to see everybody here today. Can we just admit that the last year and a half has just been no joke? I mean, we have experienced things that we never thought we would experience. As a matter of fact, it probably wouldn't surprise you that Merriam-Webster, they, they have a word, for the, uh, a word of the year every single year, and their word for 2020 was pandemic. My wife Lisa and I were actually processing um, this experience a couple of weeks ago. We were in Santa Cruz for the 4th of July. One, to get away from the heat, because Stockton is hot. And two, maybe to get away from some of you. You guys been hot. <laughs> I'm kidding. Ministry comes with its cost, and sometimes you just have to get away to get recharged. And so that's what we were doing. And, um, and we went to the beach. And when we went to the beach, we were dis discussing all the different changes we were seeing at this particular time was on the 4th of July versus the last time we came. And the last time, the last two or three times, I think, um, I think it was three times, right, hon? Yeah, it was during the pandemic and pretty much Santa Cruz was closed. I mean, you could go to a restaurant and get some food to take out or you could have them deliver it, but you were gonna be eating it in your hotel room. You know, uh, we walked on the beach, but they had all these Jeeps parked everywhere, you know, and, um, and I assumed that if we sat on the beach, someone would get out of those uh, Jeeps and kick us off. Now, I, I gotta be honest, I was really tempted to challenge the Jeeps. I was curious who would get out. Would it be David Hasselhoff, Pamela Anderson from Baywatch? But I don't like to break rules. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not a guy that willfully breaks rules. Short sidebar. Short sidebar. When Lisa and I came to Christ in 2005, we were so elated, so happy, that I opened a bottle of wine. We each had a glass. And then another. And we were so overjoyed. I think I opened another bottle. And we had another glass. And maybe another. But what I can tell you is I don't recall opening a third bottle. But I do remember waking up in the morning and saying, Honey, did we just celebrate our salvation by getting drunk? Well, that hardly seems right. So I told her, if we're going to be Christians, I need to figure out what the Christian rules are. And you know what I learned? There are so many rules. Not really. It's a lifestyle change, not rules you have to follow. It's, it's the Holy Spirit changes your heart. And, uh, and so we have adjusted to that. Um, and I'm very happy and did not celebrate our salvation again, okay? Anyway, the beach is closed, the boardwalk is closed, people are walking around it, but everyone is wearing a mask, and if they see you coming, I mean, you could be 20 yards away, and they start kind of walking this way, you know, like I'm going to jump them or something, you know. If I did that, I would lose my food, so we didn't do that, but this time, this time it's the 4th of July, and the boardwalk is just buzzing, man. You can hear the rides, you can hear the kids, you can hear the laughter, you can hear everything, and I'm looking at all this stuff, and I'm thinking... Are we just going to act like nothing happened the last eight, uh, 18 months? We're just going to go back to where we left off? Not learn anything? I asked Lisa, honey, are you seeing this? She was like, yeah, I see it. It's so different than the last time uh, we came. And I was, if you've ever been on the boardwalk on the 4th of July, I was like, I kind of liked it better when there was no one here. And she goes, well, you actually prayed for that. 
I didn't pray for that. What are you talking about? She goes, oh, no, you don't remember your prayer? It was New Year's Eve on uh, 2019. You don't remember praying on New Year's Eve, God, I'm enrolled in a master's program that I have to finish this year, and I'm struggling to stay focused. She said, did you really forget praying? God, please slow down my pace of life so I can concentrate and finish what I started. Do whatever you have to do to get me to slow down so I, in order to keep me focused. Still my chaotic life so I can finish what I started. You don't remember paying that, honey? Guys, don't you hate it that your wives never forget anything? So if I'm responsible in any way, shape, or form from the issues that we have just experienced, I'm sorry. But on a positive note, on a positive note, I did finish my master's program. And, but guess what? On my diploma, the date, October 31st, 2020. So anyways, um, where was I? Okay, earning a degree didn't do anything to diminish what we had experienced, though. You know, you'd think I'd be elated and happy, and I was, but things were just still weird. You know, it, it's what you would call like an impact moment. Have you ever heard that terminology, an impact moment? It's, it's an event or an occurrence that when it happens, you will never forget where you were. You will never forget what you were doing, who you were talking to. Um, impact moment. I've experienced two. Probably most of you in here have experienced two. The first was on September 11th, 2001. I will never forget where I was, who I was talking to, what I was doing when I watched that first plane crash into the World Trade Center. I, I, I was stunned. I was flabbergasted. That memory was etched into my mind forever. And then, boom, the second plane. Impact moment. The second impact moment began for me on March 18th, 2020, um, all of our families were in Puerto Vallarta celebrating with a family reunion. And, um, and we began to watch the United States on our news apps and everything shut down. It was like a giant electrical grid that was just shutting down grid by grid by grid by grid. Um, it was so unsettling that most of our kids scrambled to change their, air, or their flights so that they could get home early. Both my niece and nephew were there from my brother's side and their boyfriends and girlfriends, and they live in New York, and that's where it was really blowing up. Impact moment. What Lisa and I were processing were the different responses to these impact moments. After 9-11, patriotism soared, right? Solidarity was experienced by all of us. Unity was experienced throughout the entire country. We were united in mission, and we were united against a common enemy, Al-Qaeda. This pandemic, the second impact moment, has been altogether different. We have seen our country completely and totally divided, and it breaks my heart, and I believe it breaks God's heart too. We have seen social uh, tension and division. We have seen economic tension and division. We have seen racial tension and division and political tension and division. We have experienced, um, we have experienced uh, uh, hate, aggression, violence. We're seeing things that we have never seen before. So why? I guess my question is, 
if this is the polar opposite of what happened at 9-11, have, have we allowed this mindset and this disposition to enter the church? And it's for this reason I've titled this message, Are We the Church? My, the passage I chose this morning is in the Gospel of Matthew. If you would turn to that uh, chapter 16, and you'll find, uh, and as you find it, I'll, I'll set it up. It, it's a passage that most Christians know, but it is also a very highly debated passage. I'll begin my reading in verse 13 after I get a drink of this little water here. Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I don't know about you, but I must confess, I have felt the gates of hell pressing into the church, trying to get in. And if hell's pressing in, we should probably ask ourselves, are we being the church that Christ built? Because if we are, he said, the gates of hell will not prevail. As I stated earlier, uh, this is a highly debated passage. Some denominations hold that this passage describes the succession or, handing off, or the handing off of the church to Peter because his name sounds like rock. It's also suggested that because the word for rock, Petra, P-E-R-T-A, no, P-E-T-R-A, is different from that of Peter, which is Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. And it's different, and because it's different, that the rock it referred to is not Peter himself, but the confession he has just made of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What's interesting is in Aramaic, Kepha, K-E-F-A, is the original form of the name that appears in the Greek New Testament as Kephas, K-E-F-A-S. And in our Bible, Cephas, C-E-P-H-A-S, or Peter. The change in the Greek is because Petra, rock, the normal word for rock, is feminine in gender and therefore would not be suitable to describe Simon Peter. I believe that the rock Christ built his church on is the confession that Jesus is the son of the living God. So then what is Jesus talking about when he said, I will build my church? What is this church Jesus is building? Well, the first time the word church is mentioned in the New Testament, it's in the passage I just read to you. And it's spoken by Jesus. Probably important, right? It's derived from two Greek terms, ek, meaning out of, and klesia, meaning called. It signifies an outcalling of a gathering or an assembly. The term church used in the New Testament signifies a congregation of called out believers, such as the church which God planted in Corinth, as well as the entire people of God, and such as the affirmation that Christ is the head over all things to the church, which is his body. That's Ephesians 1, 22, and 23. 
So if we accept God's call into his church, we become the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12, 12, and 13 that we are all one in the body of Christ. He says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though it, all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Paul goes on to say, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. If we're part of the same body, and I'm talking the universal church, if we're part of the same body, why has there been so much arguing and division? In the beginning of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he addresses the divisions in the church. He writes uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you, be, you may be perfectly united, united in mind and thought. The letter addresses quarrels in the church in Corinth um, regarding who the church follows. One follows Paul, another Apollos, and yet another Peter or Cephas. In verse 13 of the same chapter, Paul states, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So if he's putting so much emphasis on being united, why is it so important that the church express unity instead of division? Well, Jesus tells us why it's important in his prayer in John 17. He begins praying for, for uh, his glory and his return to the Father. In 17.5, it reads, And Father, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He then goes on to pray for his disciples. And interestingly, Scripture really doesn't mention division or tension or disagreements among the disciples until you get to Paul and Peter in 2 Galatians 2. No, no, excuse me, 2 Galatians. There's no such book as 2 Galatians. <laughs> Galatians 2. Tension must have been present because when Peter asks his disciples, now remember, he's asking all of the disciples, who do people say, or who do you say I am? Well, Peter answers first. Peter always answered first. Peter was a zealot. Peter was a zealot. Zealots um, were members of a Jewish sect, and they were noted for their uncompromising opposition to pagan Rome and the polytheism that they professed. Peter wanted nothing more than to rid all of Rome uh, out of Israel. Get them out. Then you have Matthew, a tax collector. The Jews detested tax collectors, not only because of their abusive and demanding attitude, but because the very taxes that they were collecting for the Roman government were a badge of servitude and a constant reminder that God had forsaken his people. So you have Peter, a zealot, who despises Rome and everything about Rome, and you have Matthew, a tax collector, who is Rome. And yet, they walk together, they learn together, and they change the world. How is that possible? Unity. Unity in a common mission makes it possible. The mission, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and teaching them to obey all the commands I have given you. That is our commission. Jesus, and understand this, 
They knew the one opposition that they had. They knew the one enemy that they had. His name's the devil, Satan. But Jesus continues his prayer in verse 20, and he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in, the, uh, in us. And here is where, this is the reason we need to be unified, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that the world may believe that you sent me. He goes on in verse 23. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, your, our enemy is not the senior pastor who refuses to open the church because he doesn't have enough faith that God will protect us. That's not our enemy. Our enemy is not the senior pastor who opens the church and says, how could you open the church thus exposing all of our, our, our vulnerable people? We choose our enemy. Our enemy is Satan, and that's, that is it. Uh, your enemy is not, where it, it's not those who choose to wear a mask. It's not those who are anti-maskers. It's not those who get vaccinated, not those who are anti-vaccinated or anti-vaxxers, I think is what they're called. It's not your boss. It's not your spouse. It's not your coworker. It's not your neighbor who has a demon-possessed dog that barks every morning at 4 a.m., and he must be deaf because apparently he can't hear it. That is not your enemy. Our enemy is Satan. And if you haven't noticed, in our culture today, he is singing and dancing and kind of poking fun of us, man. We have brought divisions into the church that we shouldn't bring into the church. We've had people leave the church over 25 cents worth of fabric. It's a mask. Ridiculous, right? So I tried to understand why there was so much disharmony in our culture and in the church. Was it because we weren't allowed to go to the movies anymore? Which, by the way, at least we're going to a movie, right? After this? Yeah? Okay. You said so. Anyway, was it because we had to wear face masks, whether you were indoors or outdoors? Because some of the regulations and, and restrictions really seemed ridiculous, right? Um, was it because we were told to avoid family gatherings? Do you remember that? Maybe it was the fact that forced restrictions were implemented to curb the pandemic. All of those forced, or maybe it was being quarantined on how many occasions? I think it was three separate occasions. And if, if being quarantined got you upset, note to self, who were you quarantined with? Yourself, that's right. In Mark 8, Jesus and the disciples have already fed the 4,000. Jesus has been challenged by the Pharisees to show a, a sign from heaven. Um, they get into the boat, and the text say, say that the disciples forgot to bring bread. So they get in the boat, they go to the other side, the disciples forgot to bring bread. And then Jesus says something that's just a little bit odd. You know, uh, they get in the boat, and he says, Be careful, warns Jesus. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. What? Be careful. Yeast? Yeast is a fungus that can contaminate all the dough. And Jesus warns them to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, religion, and that of King Herod, politics. I think we let the yeast into the dough, y'all. 
I really do. Because it has contaminated our culture. No one is compromising. No one's listening. No one's even talking. I think when Jesus says, be careful, I think he means be careful. You know, don't make politics or the church your enemy. That's what Satan wants. He wants to divide us. For whatever reason, unity in the church suffered. In Galatians 2, not 2 Galatians, Galatians 2.11, Paul writes how he opposed Peter to his face. Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when certain men, as what the text says, came from James, Peter drew back and separated himself. The, Paul says, the text says, Paul says that when he did this, other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, and that even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, who was commissioned with Paul to go to Antioch. This hypocrisy coming from one of the very first pillars of the church, right? That means all of us could be responsible for, for bringing division into the church. This is why unity is so important and why Jesus prayed for it, so that the world would believe that Jesus was sent by God. Now, I, I was enlisted in the United States Navy from 1981 to 1985, you know, and when I graduated boot camp, I was pretty much informed that we had a sworn enemy, a sworn enemy, and those were Marine Corps people. <laughs> and the reason why is because when a Marine graduated boot camp, he thought one Marine could beat five sailors up, right? We, <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> and, and we thought it was our responsibility to show them that this was not true. So about halfway through my deployment, I'm shipped halfway around the world from anybody who loves me. And you work really hard. It's 12 on, 12 off, seven days a week. And if you were lucky, you would get a weekend off. And when you did get that weekend off, you'd go out to eat, you know, have fun. This is before Christ now, B.C., and go and have a couple drinks at the bar. And if you walked into that bar and there was five Marines and five sailors, look out, there was gonna be a brawl. And the only thing that would stop that brawl is when the Japanese police were called. And um, because if, if they got a hold of you and arrested you and put you in jail, your people wouldn't come get you out because that was the deal that they had. So then you would be AWOL, you, you would miss your, your, you would be in trouble. So we would just take off and run as fast as we could in all these different directions. And these Japanese police, they're like this high. I'm serious. This time you feel like you can push them over. But that's what would, uh, and it really never stopped us because next time we'd do it again. Next time we'd do it again. The only time we didn't do that is if Army walked into the bar. Then Navy and Marine would join together and pounce on the Army. <laughs> yep, that's what happened. And just like the Navy and the Marines had a common enemy in the Army, we kind of let the Air Force go, because come on, they're Air Force, right? <laughs> but we had a common enemy. It was the Army. We have a common enemy, and his name is Satan. His name is Satan. And we've already read in 1 Corinthians 1.10, where Paul urges the church to present a united front. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no division among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. 
The word division that Paul uses comes from the Greek root word schismata. This is where we get our word schism. It means to split, to divide, to separate, to tear apart. So when Christians are contentious, fighting and arguing, what our culture sees is our insincerity, our hypocrisy, and more importantly, it's going to kill me now. They see us tearing the body of Christ. They see us dividing, separating. They see our hypocrisy. That, that is not the church that Christ built. I'm sorry, but it's not. I think God gives us a glimpse of what the church is supposed to look like, and it's in Proverbs 31 describing the radiant bride. Everyone knows that scripture, right? Um, I believe it's metaphoric of how the bride of Christ, the church, is supposed to look, because we are called the bride of Christ, is supposed to look. Proverbs uh, 31, starting in verse 10, the radiant bride, it's an acrostic poem meaning um, there, there's 22 characters in the Hebrew alphabet. And verse 10 starts with the very first letter of, of uh, that Hebrew alphabet. And then every verse after it uses a subsequent letter. And what, what I'd like to do is I would like to read it to you. But I'd like to replace all of the feminine references and plug in the church. So this is preacher emphasis. I am not trying to change scripture. I, I, I'm trying to soften hearts, but let me read it to you. Who can ever find a church like this one? She is a woman of strength and mighty valor. The church is full of wealth and wisdom. The price paid for the church was greater than many jewels. Jesus' life. All throughout her life, the church brings him what is good and not what is evil. The church searches out continually to possess that which is pure and righteous. She delights in the work of her hands. The church gives out revelation truth to feed others. The church is like a trading ship bringing divine supplies from the merchant. Even in the night season, the church arises and sets food, uh, sets food on the table for hungry ones in her house and for others. The church sets her heart upon a field, takes it as her own. She labors there to plant the living vines. The church wraps herself in strength, might, and power in all her works. The church tastes and experiences a better substance, and her shining light will not be extinguished no matter how dark the night. The church stretches out her hand uh, to help the needy. She lays hold of the wheels of government. The church is known by her extravagant, extravagant generosity to the poor, for she always reaches out her hands to those in need. The church is not afraid of tribulation, for all her household is covered in the dual garments of righteousness and grace. Her clothing is beautifully knit together, a purple gown of exquisite linen. Jesus is famous and admired by all as a venerable judge of his people. Even her works of righteousness, the church does for the benefit of her enemies. Bold power and glorious majesty are wrapped around the church. And as she laughs with joy over the latter days, as she laughs over the joy of the latter days, the church's teachings are filled with wisdom and kindness as loving instruction, instruction pours from her lips. 
The church watches over the ways of her household and meets every need they have. Her sons and daughters arise in one accord and extol the church's virtues. And Jesus, Jesus arises to speak of the church in glowing terms. There are many valiant and noble ones, but the church has ascended above them all. Charm can be misleading, and beauty is vain, and so quickly fades. But this church lives in the wonder, awe, and fear of the Lord. She will be praised throughout eternity. So go ahead and give the church the credit that is due, for the church has become a radiant church, and all the church's loving works of righteousness deserve to be admired at the gateways of every city. That is what I believe the church that Jesus built looks like. That is why we do these Go projects. It has been my prayer, my prayer. Now, we, this helping hands of quail, it might be my fault that we haven't launched it the way it should be launched because there's so many aspects of it because my prayer is that if anything, anything in the city of Stockton is broken, I want someone from the church to be there. Not, maybe not be the person to fix it, but to assess why did it break? How can we keep it from breaking again? How can we fix it? I don't care if it's a building. I don't care if it's a car. I don't, I don't care if, if it's a lonely heart. What would our city, what would our community look like if that's the way the church responded? I think it would be something to behold. And I believe that's the church that Christ desires us to be. Let me pray. Father God, forgive us if we have not been the church that you have created us or built us to be. God, allow us to, to, to recalibrate our hearts, to look into our hearts and recalibrate them to, to uh, be in harmony with your will. Because God, your will is perfect and pleasing. And, and when we live in harmony with your will, God, others see something that they want to be a part of. That, that they want to take a hold of. They want to be part of that type of family. God, let us be that kind of family. Let us be the kind of family that not only fixes which is broken, but introduces you to those who do not believe. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.